Chapter 15, Part 3 of Twenty Years of the Republic, 1885 to 1905 by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. President Roosevelt, Part 3. Foreign observers had said that the United States now possessed the hegemony of the entire Western Hemisphere. In 1903, a series of events occurred which emphasized the truth of this assertion. For half a century the project of uniting the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans by a ship canal across the Central American Isthmus had received the attention of Great Britain, France, and the United States. Such a canal would decrease the distance by sea from New York to San Francisco by some 8,500 miles and from New York to Australia by nearly 4,000 miles. The so-called Clayton-Bulwer Treaty between the United States and Great Britain, signed in 1850, had contemplated the opening of such a canal. From time to time the subject had been revived, and in 1870 two expeditions had reported upon the subject. In 1881, a French company had been organized to cut the Isthmus of Panama and the carrying out of the plan was entrusted to Monsieur Ferdinand de Lesseps, who had successfully united the Red Sea with the Mediterranean. The attempt, however, resulted in an engineering failure and in a great financial scandal, for out of the 700 million francs subscribed, only about 90 million francs were actually expended upon the engineering works, the rest having been squandered in bribery or lost through peculation. In the United States, the best scientific opinion had favored a canal through Nicaragua, and this route was examined by a commission appointed in 1897. Meanwhile, the French project had collapsed, 1889, and the French company had offered to sell its rights to the United States. Various commissions made surveys and reports. But finally, on January 20, 1902, President Roosevelt sent to Congress a message recommending the construction of a canal at Panama and the purchase of the French rights for $40 million. Congress responded by appropriating $170 million for the realization of the plan and, in case it were not possible to secure the consent of the United States of Colombia, directed the President to have the canal constructed by the Nicaragua route at a cost not to exceed $180 million. A treaty was then negotiated between Secretary Hay and the Colombian minister, Signor Aran, by which Colombia was to grant the desired privilege in return for the sum of $10 million to be paid outright, and an annual rental of $250,000. This treaty was ratified by the United States Senate in extra session, March 17, 1903, and then went to the Senate of Colombia. That body, strangely enough, rejected the treaty by a unanimous vote, August 17. The government of Colombia let it be known a little later that a new treaty would be ratified if the United States would pay the sum of $25 million instead of the $10 million provided for in the Hay-Aaron Agreement. It was obvious that Colombia was holding up the North American Republic and that the whole question turned upon the payment of money. At this juncture, the state of Panama, incensed by the sacrifice of its commercial interests, seceded from Colombia and established a provisional government of its own, appealing to the United States for recognition. President Roosevelt, within three days, acknowledged the independence of the Republic of Panama. Physical conditions prevented Colombia from sending troops to Panama by land to coerce the seceding state, and American vessels of war at once appeared in Central American waters and began to cruise up and down the coast. Marines were landed on the Isthmus, and the Colombian government was informed that the United States would permit no fighting there. France and England almost at once gave their recognition to the new republic. 
Columbia then, when it was too late, offered every possible concession, but the offer was rejected. Monsieur Bunovarilla, a Franco-Spanish engineer, was by cable accredited as Panama's representative at Washington and on November 18th, he and Secretary Hay signed a treaty by which the Republic of Panama granted to the United States the privilege of constructing a canal in return for $10 million and a guarantee of Panama's independence. To the United States was also given control of a belt of land 10 miles wide through which the canal was to be cut. The Provisional Government of Panama ratified this treaty on December 2nd, and it was approved by the United States Senate, Note 28, page 702, on February 23, 1904, only 14 votes being cast against it. Public opinion favored the action of the government, though with some reservations. In the presence of a fait accompli, there was no possibility of retreat. Moreover, the mercenary conduct of the Colombians had deprived them of much of the sympathy which might otherwise have been given to them. It was proved also that the United States had in no way instigated the revolt of Panama, a state which had revolted before and which had for years been hostile to the central government. Finally, the gain to the whole world from the construction of a canal across the isthmus was obvious to all. Nevertheless, the transaction was not one of which Americans could be proud. It violated the principles of international comity and morality. The alleged baseness of the Colombian Senate did not justify the spoliation of Colombia by a professedly friendly power. The indecent haste with which Panama's independence had been recognized was repugnant to many Americans. When the President received the new Panamanian minister, he very unwisely compared his own recognition of Panama to President Monroe's recognition of the South American states after their revolt from Spain. Yet he must have known that President Monroe took that step only after waiting more years than President Roosevelt had waited days. It was plain, too, that the President had acted toward a feeble state like Colombia as he would not have dared to act toward a great and warlike power. His conduct in this affair, therefore, savored too strongly of bullying to be admirable. Morally, the acquisition of the canal zone was as reprehensible as the partition of Poland, and it was affected with every possible circumstance that could give offense. The New York Evening Post expressed, though rather infelicitously, a widespread feeling when it remarked, Note 29, page 704. The same result could have been reached with some regard for appearances. The booty could have been bagged just the same, yet the burglar could have looked to the casual eye more like a church member. The wrong involved in this affair was destined to bring in part its own revenge. President Roosevelt, in his sanguine off-hand way, declared that the canal must be commenced at once, that he would begin immediately to make the dirt fly. He could not then foresee the long delays, the shocking waste, the crass incompetence, and the noisome scandals that were to dog and defer the work upon which he had entered with so light a heart. Here, as oftentimes before in his career, he displayed the hopeful inexperience of an amateur, and that which he lightly fancied the achievement of a few years dragged wearily along until even the most optimistic of Americans perceived that it was destined to remain the despair of distant decades. Note 30, page 704. The President, however, was satisfied with the result of his action and proceeded to display his self-complacency in a piece of phrase-making which became famous. His notion of a foreign policy, he said, was to speak softly but to carry a big stick. What really gave him serious anxiety at this time was the question of his election in 1904, 
or rather the question as to whether his own party would nominate him for the presidency. There were good reasons for his doubt. On April 9, 1903, the suit of Attorney General Knox for the dissolution of the Northern Securities merger had been decided in favor of the government and against the railway magnates. Note 31, page 705. A decree ordering the dissolution of the merger was filed in accordance with this decision. The independent press of the country rejoiced at so effective a check to the march of monopoly. Thus, the Portland Oregonian declared, It is a blow at anarchy. Disregard and violation of law come to the same thing whether held at the corner of Broad and Wall Streets, in private palace cars and along Fifth Avenue, or by the ragged beggar stealing a loaf from a baker's wagon. The Cincinnati Times Star remarked, Wall Street, with its short-sighted standpoint of pecuniary gain in the immediate future, may regard the Northern Securities decision as a great evil. Those Americans who are more deeply and unselfishly interested in the industrial and political future of their country, however, can scarcely fail to take a diametrically opposite position and regard the decision as fraught with much of practical benefit and promise for the future of the Republic. But, of course, the decision of the court enraged the representatives of capital as much as it alarmed them. It renewed their purpose to prevent the nomination of Mr. Roosevelt. Beginning with the early autumn of 1903, all their insidious agencies were set to work to discredit him and to make his nomination seem impossible. The country beheld a wonderful exhibition of the power of this third estate. Its newspapers were filled with studied sneers, with slanderous hints, and with expressions of veiled contempt. Chief among the condottieri of this veiled opposition was the New York Sun, which since the death of Mr. Dana in 1897 had suffered various vicissitudes, but which was now believed to be controlled by Mr. Pierpont Morgan. The Sun displayed an ingenuity and a malice worthy of the great editor who was gone. It quoted with relish an offensive phrase which described the friends of Mr. Roosevelt as bugs on the White House doormat. It ridiculed his military record, and with solemn irony strove to sap the foundations of his popularity. Note 32, page 706. At first, the real drift of all this criticism was not apparent, but the secret was let out in an editorial which the Sun published on December 14, 1903, in commenting on the election in Ohio which had resulted in a great Republican majority. Quoth the Sun, we see the Honorable Marcus A. Hanna crowned with the laurels of that mighty November majority. Victorious as he is, the bugs on the White House doormat, to use a coarse phrase worthy of that low and practical view of politics that obtains among the Buckeyes, are biting him sharply. On the other hand, the mighty majority is crowding in on him, seeking to force him away from the stake to which he has bound himself, a monument of self-denial. There is every indication that at the present time Senator Hanna is holding himself in restraint, but only showing the stoicism of a martyr at the stake. His patience is remarkable, his endurance marvelous, yet the air around him is charged with electricity. The Pie Counter Brigade, or psychophants for office, and the bugs on the White House doormat, as the members of Roosevelt's immediate circle at Washington are known, have been assiduously at work nibbling and gnawing at his ankles. Never a day goes by, but he must suppress anger that would cause most men to break loose and hurl defiance at the headsman. This situation must be distressing, not so much perhaps to the martyr himself as to one deeply interested soul, the object of this drama of abnegation. Between the bugs and the majority, will the stake hold? 
From this moment, Mr. Hanna was everywhere regarded as a rival of Mr. Roosevelt for the Republican nomination. The movement in his favor was carried on all over the country with infinite skill and through all the channels of the business world. Bankers told their customers that a continuance of Mr. Roosevelt in office would lead to hard times and would compel a curtailment of discounts. Manufacturers and great business houses let it be known to their employees that their prosperity in the future was imperiled by the unsafe man in the White House. This feeling spread from man to man until in January 1904, it really seemed as though the conspiracy would be successful. A knowledge of these facts seriously disturbed the President. He frankly sought a nomination and was not ashamed to say so. He had enjoyed the experiences of his office with a keen relish. Often, writing to his friends and dictating his letters to a stenographer, he would speak of the burdens of the presidency. Yet, before the letter was sent, he sometimes scrawled with his own hand at the bottom of the page the words, But I like it. He was tired of having it said that he was only an accidental president. He wished such an endorsement of his policies and of himself as an election by the people would imply. His anxiety was very obvious. Mr. Hanna's popularity gave him many perplexing hours. Mr. Hanna himself once remarked laughingly, Whenever I call at the White House, the President thinks it's necessary to swear me in again. Whether the Senator was seriously hoping for his own election, it is difficult to say. It is certain, however, that he began to seek the favor of the labor element which had long been hostile to him. He helped organize the National Civic Federation and became its president. He also set his business affairs in order, withdrawing from various enterprises in which he had been interested, thereby making it possible to assume any new duty which might be imposed upon him. For the moment, the party was divided and the president seemed to be daily losing ground. A sudden change in the aspect of affairs was caused by Mr. Hanna's death in February 1904. Without him, the opposition within the party had no head. Dislike of Mr. Roosevelt among the capitalists had not decreased, yet there was no one available to oppose him. Then ensued a period of uncertainty. As was said by a Republican adversary of the president, everybody is for Roosevelt, but nobody wants him. Yet this remark was utterly untrue. The country was decidedly for Mr. Roosevelt, and it also wanted him. Now that Mr. Hanna was removed, there came a great surge of favor which in a month or two gave to the President the absolute mastery of his party. When the Republican Convention met at Chicago on June 21st, it met as a mere machine to register the presidential wishes. Every speech had been submitted to him and had been revised by him. The platform was practically of his own composition. The great hall of the Coliseum, which covered five acres of ground, contained a body of delegates who felt that there could be no interest in a gathering where no initiative was allowed. Enthusiasm was lacking, and one cynical delegate remarked, The only live thing about the convention today was the picture of the dead Hannah. On the second day the platform was read and adopted. It contained in essence little more than formal endorsement of the administration. On the third day, Mr. Roosevelt was formally nominated by ex-Governor Frank S. Black of New York, who succeeded in rousing the convention for the first time to something like enthusiasm. His speech was, in fact, a superb piece of rhetoric, of which at least one passage may be quoted here. There is no regret so keen in man or country as that which follows an opportunity unembraced. Fortune soars with high and rapid wing, and whosoever brings it down must shoot with accuracy and speed.
Only the man with steady eye and nerve and the courage to pull the trigger brings the largest opportunities to the ground. He does not always listen while all the sages speak, but every nightfall beholds some record which, if not complete, has been at least pursued with conscience and intrepid resolution. The fate of nations is still decided by their wars. You may talk of orderly tribunals and learned referees. You may sing in your schools the gentle praises of the quiet life. You may strike from your books the last note of every martial anthem. And yet, out in the smoke and thunder will always be the tramp of horses and the silent, rigid, upturned face. Men may prophesy and women pray, but peace will come here to abide forever on this earth only when the dreams of childhood are the accepted charts to guide the destinies of men. Note 33, page 709. Mr. Roosevelt was nominated by acclamation, and Mr. Charles W. Fairbanks of Indiana was made his associate as a candidate for the vice presidency. Mr. Fairbanks was a gentleman of conservative views, whose rather cold and formal manners presently gained for him the popular nickname of Ice Banks. The convention adjourned with as little enthusiasm as had marked its gathering. Yet, in spite of this unprecedented absence of emotion, or perhaps because of it, there was something grimly suggestive and impressive about the whole affair. One seemed to see here no shouting mob of volunteers, but rather an army, highly organized and disciplined, trained to obey implicitly the orders of a single chief, and with the prestige of past victory upon its banners. The soldiers in the ranks might have their private hesitancies and dislikes, but these were not to count when in the presence of the enemy nor to alter, however slightly, an unflinching determination to win the coming battle. Much keener interest was felt in the action of the Democratic Convention, which had been called for July 6 in St. Louis. The democracy was in a mood to revert to its earlier conservatism rather than to experience once more with the policies of Mr. Bryan. This conservatism was the more clearly indicated because radicalism had now been approved by the Republicans and was embodied in the personality of their chief. Hence, the name most often heard as that of the possible Democratic candidate was the name of Alton B. Parker, chief judge of the New York Court of Appeals. Judge Parker had been bred to the profession of the law and his first thought in public life was of rule and precedent. He had all the jurist's dread of innovation— and while his courage was undoubted, it was always manifested in a quiet fashion. He recalled the American public men of other days, the Adamses, the Jays, and the Marshals, statesmen and jurists who gave form and definite cohesion to the federal government in its early years. Personally, he had the human qualities in abundant measure, the kindliness and courtesy of one who is always genuine and sincere, with just a touch of that elusive rusticity which carries a wholesome suggestion of a purely natural environment. As the weeks passed on, Judge Parker seemed more and more likely to receive the Democratic nomination. His chief rival was Mr. William Randolph Hearst of New York. Mr. Hearst was a young man, the son of Senator Hearst of California, and he had inherited from his father a large fortune with which he had established newspapers of a sensational character in New York, in Boston, in Chicago, in San Francisco, and in Los Angeles. Mr. Hearst was more radical even than Mr. Bryan. He was a state socialist who had formerly advocated free silver and in his newspapers had never wearied of denouncing the abuses of capitalism. 
He was seriously regarded in many portions of the country as a great tribune of the people who would, if he had the power, destroy the lawless corporations, give over the railways and the telegraphs to the government, and in general bring about a sort of socialistic millennium. This belief, and an abundant use of money in his preliminary canvas, with perhaps the secret support of Mr. Bryan, secured for Mr. Hurst not only delegations from several of the so-called silver states, but those of such great commonwealths as Illinois, Iowa, and California. When the convention met, it was obviously dominated by the conservative element. Mr. Cleveland's name was received with thunders of applause, and it was said that now at last the democracy would show itself to be both safe and sane. The first day was devoted to speech-making, but on the second day the convention displayed its temper in a test vote as to the seating of certain Illinois delegates. Mr. Bryan advocated their admission, but by a vote of 647 to 299 his proposal was defeated, and he left the hall in a state of evident dejection. Nevertheless, in committee he was able by the force of his personality to exclude from the platform any reference to the money question. On the evening of July 8th, the candidates were put in nomination, and Judge Parker received 658 ballots as against the 204 that were cast for Mr. Hurst. Men wondered, however, in what light the judge would view a nomination given him after the adoption of a platform so negative in character. They had not long to wait. On the next day, a telegram was received and read of which the text was as follows. I regard the gold standard as firmly and irrevocably established, and shall act accordingly if the action of the convention today shall be ratified by the people. As the platform is silent on the subject, my views should be made known to the convention, and if they prove to be unsatisfactory to the majority, I request you to decline the nomination for me at once, so that another may be nominated before adjournment. Alton B. Parker to this telegram, after a hasty consultation among the leaders, a reply was sent in these words. The platform adopted by this convention is silent on the question of the monetary standard, because it is not regarded by us as a possible issue in this campaign, and only campaign issues were mentioned in the platform. Therefore, there is nothing in the views expressed by you in the telegram just received, which would preclude a man entertaining them from accepting a nomination on said platform. The terms of this reply were bitterly assailed by Mr. Bryan, who rose from a sickbed, pale and shaking with fever, to utter a last plea for the cause with which his name was linked. His passionate eloquence never was more splendid than in this hour of momentary defeat. He thrilled all who heard him, yet he failed to shake the set purpose of the majority. The convention then adjourned after nominating for the vice-presidency Mr. Henry G. Davis of West Virginia, a wealthy octogenarian. The most conservative Democrats all over the country lauded the courage of their chief candidate. The supporters of Mr. Bryan, however, and the friends of Mr. Hurst were thoroughly discontented, and throughout the campaign which followed they exhibited not only apathy but unfriendliness. Mr. Bryan himself, though deeply disappointed, displayed unshaken loyalty to his party's choice. At first it seemed as though the conservative elements of the country might be rallied to Judge Parker's support. Mr. Cleveland emerged from his seclusion to speak in behalf of his party's candidate. The moneyed interests hesitated for a few weeks. But in the end, they accepted Mr. Roosevelt in the belief that he was certain to be elected, and that, while they might not be able to control his policies, they could at least succeed in blocking them or in accomplishing their defeat. Moreover, some of the men who were most conspicuous in their advocacy of Judge Parker's election failed to inspire general confidence. 
Again, Judge Parker's utterances were too sedate and too conservative for a people which had grown accustomed to more stirring words. Moreover, Mr. Roosevelt was fortunate in having Mr. John Hay as his chief cabinet adviser. Many conservative Republicans were wont to remark, Well, after all, a vote for Roosevelt is really a vote for Hay. As the summer advanced, the tide set in with increasing force in favor of the President, and the Democrats were obviously losing ground. One thing alone gave a shock to the moral sense of the country. At the head of the Republican National Committee was placed Mr. George B. Cortelieu, who had resigned a seat in the cabinet to act as campaign manager. It was intimated that in case the president should be elected, Mr. Cortelieu would be made postmaster general. There was a certain impropriety in all this. Mr. Cortelieu had been secretary of commerce and labor, and in that office he had learned the secrets of the great corporations. His demands upon them for pecuniary contributions would therefore be especially effective, while the chance of his being the future head of the post office department made every postmaster in the country a political agent through dread of possible removal. Judge Parker called attention to these circumstances in a speech to which the President wrote a reply couched in hot words of anger and ending with the following notable passage. The statements made by Mr. Parker are unqualifiedly and atrociously false. As Mr. Cortelieu has said to me more than once during this campaign, if elected, I shall go into the presidency unhampered by any pledge, promise, or understanding of any kind, sort, or description, save my promise, made openly to the American people, that so far as in my power lies, I shall see to it that every man has a square deal, no less and no more. This, for the moment, silenced public criticism. Of course, no one had supposed that Mr. Roosevelt was personally aware of any bargaining. Indeed, it was not necessary to assume that any open or explicit bargaining had been made. But in the following year it became known that large sums had been improperly, if not dishonestly, paid into the Republican campaign fund by the great insurance companies of New York, and that in one instance the company's books had been falsified to conceal the evidence of this illegal use of a trust fund. It was plain that such contributions would hardly have been made without a confident expectation of receiving valuable favors in return. Judge Parker's charges were therefore in essence justified. At the election, however, Mr. Roosevelt was so overwhelmingly successful as to make the results certain within two hours after the polls had closed. In the popular vote he had a majority of nearly two million, while in the electoral college he had 336 votes as against 140 given to Judge Parker. Yet when analyzed, it was apparent that his great success was due largely to the defection at the polls of the Hearst and Bryan voters. The total number of ballots cast in the country was less by nearly half a million than those which had been cast in 1900, in spite of the growth in population. It was not then so much an increase in the Republican vote as a decrease in the Democratic that brought about a result which on the face of it seemed cataclysmic. No sooner had the news of his success been carried to the President than he gave out a written statement from the White House to the effect that under no circumstances would he be a candidate for another nomination. Note 34, page 715. President Roosevelt entered upon his second term in March 1905, under happy auspices and with a great majority of his own party in control of Congress. What he might actually do thereafter was uncertain. How far his efforts in behalf of honesty and equal justice might be effectual in the face of sinister and reactionary influences, none could say. 
but he at least, by speech and act, committed the powerful organization of which he was the head to a new and truer policy, and one consistent with the ideals of its founders, a policy from which thereafter it would be not only difficult, but base, to swerve. End of chapter 15